All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. We got Michaels 1 and 2, Vance, you know, Ellis, welcome. What's up? Thank you, sir. Good to be here. Been a slow week. Slow, <laughs> slow week in crypto land. Everybody's busy for DC, though. Busy for DC. Vance, I think we owe you a congratulations. Congratulations is in order. Yeah. Boring. We got the shout out from VCs congratulating themselves. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a two-time, I'm a two-time. <laughs> you know? Big if true. Big if true. Big if true. That was they great. got me. No, but good sport. <laughs> Voracious reader. <laughs> true. How have your readings been going, Vance? I mean, I bought, I bought it. I bought one other book and I thought it was a normal book. It's a fucking textbook. It's like a thousand pages that just showed up that. I was like, I can't read this. This is too far. Was it the Dalio, the New World Order book? No, it's actually, it's it's a it's a hundred years of investment returns. It's called the Triumph of Op- Optimists. It's got like all these charts. It's it's a lot. Maybe it's too much, but I'm I'm gonna start digging into it at some point. Did Just you learn that uh, every every hedge fund, if you've given long enough time, eventually blows up? Yeah that that is that is pretty undeniable. That and like being bullish is usually you know a winning strategy. Like the, I think those are kind of the two lessons, especially if you if you read like the the long dated takes on finance, like the price of time or uh, you know uh, triumph of the optimist. I agree with that. I think even I've heard even like Stan Druckenmiller, who I think he said he makes his money in a bearish way, but most of the people, even like the famous macro bears out there, made their money on longs, not shorts. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've known anybody in crypto who's made a career off of shorting. I know a lot of people who've been completely destroyed by that. So, you know, have anecdotes there as well. Yeah. All right. You want to get into the stories of the week here? So obviously, I guess the caveat here would be that these have already been sort of talked to death. So I want to spend a relatively limited amount of time on them. But the SEC has came after both Binance and Coinbase this week. The TLDR is that the allegations against Binance were, I would say, much more serious than than Coinbase. So non-exhaustive list for Binance was that so Binance BAM management BAM trading and CZ were all personally named as defendants in the suit Uh, the allegations are that Binance BAM trading sold unregistered securities Binance commingled customer funds I'll call back to SBF Uh, Binance operated as an unregistered exchange there was wash trading on Binance US Binance and CZ solicited US customers uh, and a whole bunch of other things coin Coinbase is what's much more, I would say it's completely different, actually. And their allegation is that uh, Coinbase operated as an unregistered broker. There were securities, unregistered securities on that exchange. Uh, the one that stood out there was uh, Solana and Matic, but there were others listed like Cardano, Filecoin, Sand. Uh, and then they specifically targeted their staking program as well. So there's a lot that's been said about this already, but curious just what sort of takeaways you guys had from the week? Frankly, it's not 
a super differentiated perspective, but <clears throat> as it relates to both of these lawsuits, I think one of the things that we should keep in context is what's going on with whatever is happening with Ripple. And that started in December of 2020. It's now June of 2023, and there isn't resolution on that. There's been intermediate decisions and intermediate kind of things that have been admissible, things that have been dismissed, but this is going to take years to play out for both of these situations. And in the meantime, Coinbase came out and said, we're not shutting down our staking program. We're not delisting assets. We don't list registered security, unregistered securities. We are compliant. Uh, we were compliant when we went public. Um, all of this stuff is going to come up to a fight and it's either going to happen in the court or frankly, it's also going to happen potentially in Congress and there's going to be new laws and new rules created in the meantime. So. Yeah, not a hugely differentiated approach. Um, I think on the Binance front, frankly, like <laughs> everybody was wondering where Catherine Coley was. We now know. Uh, That's the best yeah. part of all of this is that Coley's back. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, seems like Brooks and Coley have been have been uh, you know sharing sharing information, um, and you would also kind of assume, you know, with the level of the allegations that are happening in the Binance suit. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something from the DOJ at some point, um, just because, you know, it looks and feels a lot like the SBF, uh, FTX Alameda stuff, not saying that, you know, a suit means that they're guilty in any way, shape or form. All that stuff has to get adjudicated, but, um, it just feels like that's the direction that things are moving for Binance. Yeah, honestly, I don't really have that much to add there either. I think. Yeah, I don't think it's widely. That. I mean, the market, like, there were two things that were interesting. Uh, Gensler was, and the SEC was, they were obviously trying to paint Binance as like FTX 2.0. But if you look at the outflows of, of Binance, I can pull up a chart here. Like, it was pretty just business as usual, like normal day, you know? Here. It's, it's right. I think it's like, nice that you got this out of the way, also. Yeah. Like, this, this is like, you know, you had the Wells notice hanging over Coinbase for like six months. Finance has been. Four years of waiting, you know, I remember Tether in the last bear market that like kind of resolving was one of the points where things got a little bit more optimistic, but you know, there's no alpha in my opinion in like worrying about this regulatory stuff. Like it's either, you know, like a full cycle away. So like the next bear market is like when this might resolve, but ahead of that, to Michael's point, there's like legislation, there's court cases, there's so many different things that could supersede this that, you know, who, who really cares in our, in my opinion about this? probably just like traditional media news outlets that are trying to make a narrative out of it. Yeah. For, I also think traditional media, mainstream media, man, mainstream, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, get, get here. I actually think there was a bit of a market signal, which was, you know, it's not like prices really reacted super negatively to this, especially post the Coinbase news. They actually rebounded. And generally I view it as a positive sign when there's really bad news, but prices don't put in a new low. So I thought of that, that was actually kind of, a silver lining yeah i mean for for all of the uh for all of like the media consternation from the mainstream eth is up like just about as much as nvidia this year and nvidia is the best performing asset in the s p so like there's kind of uh i get this feeling that like perception is like more it's just like a bit more doomer than reality at the moment it's good to kind of just like take a step back and look at the prices and and just see that it hasn't moved yeah it's kind of like you know in scary movies when you have the whole like two thirds of the movie where you're chasing around and you're trying to fi figure out what the monster is and like the monster's coming to get you, but then you finally see the monster and you're like, oh, 
that's just animatronics. It, it, it is interesting if you think about like how uh, risk averse Coinbase used to be. Like I, I forget if back in the day we were waiting for them to list ETH because it was like just like Bitcoin and Litecoin for a while. They, it, they only had like three assets. Like they were super careful. Like the, there was no listing framework. It was just like you know there were two assets. And now it's the total different way. And and they're not really as scared seemingly of the SEC anymore. Yeah, I think that was sort of an internal fight between Balaji was at Coinbase at the time. He was their CTO and there was someone else who had more of a TradFi background. Yeah, I don't I don't remember that being a, a regulatory reason for them. I think that was just like, are we trading Bitcoin only or adding stuff? It was May of 2017. Or no, it was 2016 that they added ETH. It was when they acquired uh, GDAX, right? Right. Oh man, did they acquire that? I don't, are they I don't are they they rebranded? They rebranded Coinbase Exchange to to the Global Digital Asset Exchange GDAX. Yep. And they well, I think they had uh, their UI was basically like a basic swap, and then they added GDAX for professional traders because that was a that was I believe that was sort of like a Fred Ursum, uh desired goal because um, he wanted it to be for more like a trading experience. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Um, they're coming out like all the C5 exchanges are getting getting attacked right now. It makes you think about uh, like just the role. Okay, so basically like uh, there are three groups in traditional markets that perform different actions, right? You have the exchange, which is like brings together the buyers and the sellers and like is the marketplace for the buyers and sellers. Uh, then you have the broker dealers who represent the customer and like bring the trades from the customer to the exchange. And then you have the clearinghouse, which settles the trades and sometimes is the custodian as well. Um, in DeFi, this would be, in like CFI right now, there's like this kind of weird commingling of like, there's no broker dealer. Cause like the user has their assets on Coinbase. Then like the settlement is like sometimes with Coinbase, but sometimes just on, on the L1, like on ETH. Uh, and it just makes me think about like, what is the role of CFI in the next market? Is this just a stopping point on the way to the inevitable? Like let's, let's translate that to DeFi exchange, Uniswap broker, MetaMask clearing agency ethereum um and it just makes me think of like see like what what is the role of cfi not in like the next year or two but in like five to ten years from now there, there's a there's a bunch of interesting stuff that's being a bunch of startups that have recently gotten funded that are probably going to be in market in you know six or twelve months and um you know the things that we see that are going to kind of like take advantage of this change in market structure are Bilateral trading desks that are based in New York kind of to replace the genesises of the world that that no longer exists. Places like Biduda, you know, places um, that have access to the CME. And recently the CME has been seeing like a ton of new volume. So like there is interest from the traditional institutions and they're starting to trade there a bit more in size. Um, and then there's things like payment for order flow, which frankly like work at an abstraction level closer to retail. Those aren't really like institutional funds trading. Um, that's more so just like servicing the order flow from those wallets, but like those are, those are coming kind of like, just like different participants, lit markets, you know, uh, people with different structures as regard with relating to things like custody and how you trade out of, uh, you know, a separated custody account that's also coming. There's like a lot of really interesting things that are being shipped right now. And on the other side, you have probably a lot of market makers that are also getting bootstrapped and those are going to start replacing like the Jane streets and the, uh, the jumps of the world as they pull back so like it does feel like there is this healthy rotating of the guard but also like new technology stepping in to fill the market structure gaps and then you also have just like DeFi running you know alongside that and and getting a different part of the market so 
I think it's all um, pretty positive. I think the things that could change are if there's legislation and that you know literally changes the mar market structure that creates a lot of like very interesting new firms that makes ETFs possible, like places like Bitwise probably get you know share from that. So there's a lot of just different tailwinds um, that the space is riding at the moment. I feel like we're pretty positive on it, Michael. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I was going to jump in on the last point there uh, and say the same thing, which is I think actually, you know, in the eyes of what has been happening in D.C. or New York, wherever these lawsuits are, are these suits are being uh, uh, founded, the, the biggest thing that happened this week was the market structure proposal. Um, and I think, you know, it's it. The, the quick TLDR is it provides a lot of black and white playbook for how things like stablecoins should work, for how registrations should work for token projects, how something goes from a security to a sufficiently decentralized commodity. And that market structure will fundamentally change the way that DeFi interacts in the current status, where if you're an insider, you know, a founder or an investor in a protocol versus a user, you're going to have different designation of the tokens for the first 12 months you're not going to be able to sell them if you're an insider you have to disclose all of the holdings it'll eventually transition to something that's sufficiently decentralized that will move from trading those assets from an ats to a cftc registered and uh compliant exchange like the the market structure is going to get a lot more complicated as regulation starts to to come to the forefront but I do think it's going to look and feel a lot similar for end users. It's just going to be the the venues of, of where things trade when is going to change pretty pretty fundamentally. It's not really just going to be like the exchange is Uniswap. It's going to be, yeah, sure, maybe eventually Uniswap can be an exchange. But for the first 12 months, it's going to be one exchange. And then after that, it's going to be a different one. And if you're based in the US, it's going to be something else. So maybe it's the wallets and the broker dealer you know, designation here that has to figure that part out and, you know, route accordingly and manage the customer relationship accordingly and be registered accordingly. But uh, there's a lot of movement in, in a very positive direction that, that we think about. I'm also curious, what do people think? Uh, there was a Uniswap P4 teaser this week, or maybe like Easter egg. What, what do people think they ship? Payment for order flow? Mm. Probably like a suave competitor. I don't know. Something I think like that. There's a there's a budding debate in the MEV world between sort of application specific order flow auctions versus more generalized order flow auctions like a Suave. And I think Uniswap probably takes some kind of stab at that. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think, Bess? I think like the AMM market is is probably uh good enough. You know, like I don't see another innovation in that space really like getting them from zero to one in terms of just more market share or just growing the pie overall. I think their problem historically is they've been hamstrung by like having to vote through these deployments on these different chains. And it probably works if you can have something that is functional at a level of abstraction over everything. So you can kind of, you know, service order flow on any chain on, you know, any type of block space that exists. So that would definitely be a departure in terms of, you know, Uniswap is so simple and that's kind of like where its beauty comes from and why it has a lot of usership, but maybe they kind of take a step in a more aggressive direction um, with something that's that's a bit further out there and plays at a different level of abstraction. Mm. I think there are sort of two trends in AMM design that are diverging around maybe Uniswap versus something like Curve that I think is interesting and it kind of has to do with their assumptions around supply side and liquidity. Like uni, like the the jump from V two to V three, 
was kind of based on the assumption that you would have more sophisticated market makers. Like it's much harder to be an LP on V3 than it was on V2. And we've talked about this on previous shows. I don't have great evidence around this, but from what I've kind of heard, it's it's very concentrated in terms of who provides liquidity on V3. So I'd bet you that the, their design sort of capitalizes on that uh, in V4, and there's some sort of OFA, like order flow auction type thing, so that you can give a better experience for users. The curve is almost taking the opposite approach. They're sort of banking. They have um, they've made it easier for retail to be LPs on the new design of their exchange. Um, and they're sort of lowering their fees and they're trying to subsidize that with fees from their stable coin. So it's kind of two very different designs. I'm interested to see how it plays out, frankly. Yeah, the, that last playbook you described is only possible in Switzerland. Like, like you know, Uniswap's not issuing a stable coin that they can, you know, do different things with the fees with. Their design space is a lot more concentrated. Do you think that's a benefit or, or a, an obstacle? I think like the benefits of having a bit more expansive of a playbook where you can do different things with the fees, you can make it more reflexive, have blown people up. And so like there's there's drawbacks to that that aren't like immediately apparent. But, you know, I think, you know, if you asked Hayden, would he like a bit more design space to work with, he would probably say yes. It's just a matter of like, do you take that and then light yourself on fire? You know, it is interesting, like, you could probably draw that analogy across a couple of different examples in crypto. So on the CeFi space, there's like the Binance versus the Coinbase approach. Then there's kind of like Aave versus Compound and then maybe Curve versus Uniswap. And I agree with you. I think it's sort of like, we'll see which one of those strategies ultimately ends up. I actually think the Aave versus Compound is is pretty interesting. I think a lot of people have sort of slept on the new upgrade to, to Compound. In general, I know people really like Aave is great. They ship a lot of stuff, but they have very different strategies. And it seems like compounds is more like people want to borrow and lend stable coins. So let's make it as capital efficient as possible to borrow and lend stables. Whereas Aave is like, you should be able to supply uh, collateral and borrow lend with, with anything that you want. And so far that's been the winning strategy, but I'm not sure it's going to be into the future. I would also say, I don't think <clears throat> you can't necessarily say that everything is apples to apples. Um, in the sense that, you know, there are different markets between swapping spot assets, borrowing spot assets and exchanging and doing derivatives and all that, um, you know, and these are companies and, uh, I, it was just announced today, but like lens, you know, is something that they're working on in Aave. It's sort of like, you know, there's a, just a bunch of things that are going on inside of all of that, that dictate a lot of the direction of where those things go. So it's not like we're going to take this strategy and we're going to go full bore into this direction versus, you know, that strategy in that direction. I'm stoked for all these stable coins to get to uh, escape velocity, though. I, I saw this position on uh, DeFi Moon, the, the Twitter account uh, retweeted it, where someone had taken, I think it was like seven Steeth and looped it with Curve until they had 35 Steeth. Like, this is where, in my mind, this is where like some of the credit is going to come from for the next run you know like just we still haven't seen any recovery of the uh dollar lending markets in crypto but these seem to be the next best thing i completely agree with that i think like one of the like we've talked about it on the show but one thing that at least i didn't understand in the last bull market was where leverage was getting introduced which was via grayscale 
just didn't get that sort of loop between the <laughs> arbitrage that was being run. Yeah, true. Yeah. Not just Raystl, but yes. Yeah, true. That was like a big. That was a big part of it. Um, and probably there's some sort of combination of like an eigenlayer rehypothecation plus like the, you know, uh, liquid staking tokens reaching escape velocity, which is probably good. That probably injects a little healthy leverage. I mean, you can kind of already start to see it. People looping these things, chasing yields. There's probably market fit for that, for better or for worse. I'm just trying to find this chart on uh, the growth of some of this stuff. I'm going to send this to you. This is this is one of the more interesting charts that I saw over the past. Yeah. I think this is definitely BlockWorks analyst sourced. Your your army of of uh, interns, um, but like Lads. this is super interesting. If you want to throw it up in this, yeah. can yeah, I got it. But this is a chart of wrapped ETH versus LSTs, and I didn't know that wrapped ETH was was this prevalent. But like at one point, almost. 7% of the supply of ETH was in wrapped, wrapped ETH. And and you just see, like, you know, like that kink from 7% down to 3% contrasted with the kink up on the LSTs. Like, th there's 3% more of ETH just sitting on chain that will probably stake at some point. And it'll probably be LSTs as well. Like, this is going to be huge. The, the key point here is that ETH wrapped ETH is what was technically used for most of DeFi because you had to wrap it to be able to put it into smart contracts to be able to, you know, use as collateral or whenever it may be. So it's basically like DeFi 1.0 versus what you can probably say is DeFi 2.0. All right, say that again, Michael. Say that last sentence again. <clears throat> DeFi 1.0 would be wrapped ETH on this chart. DeFi 2.0 yeah. would be LSDs. LSDs, yeah. 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 I agree. I mean, it's, it seems pretty obvious at this point. LSTs are just going to continue to grow as a replacement to to ETH and WEATH. So why? Yeah, why would you? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Sort of like uh, okay, here's an asset that you can uh, use collateral. I feel like we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious if you both do. Do you think we'll see? I mean, we talked about this last time a little, but will we see a hard cap or like some sort of tax proposed on Lido's market share? Will we see it this year? No, not this yeah. year. No, well, I think that's like a multi-year conversation. There's yeah. there's no taxes or hard caps or gates in the protocol right now. I think yeah. that would require, like, you you also risk splitting the community. Frankly, like if if one of the LSTs has twenty million ETH and people are like, all right, we're going to hard cap it. Like, do, does that community just take it lying down? Probably not. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of like the uh, the Bitcoin chain wars back in the day. Like it's an argument over basically the same thing, which is like the economics of the protocol. Mm. Going to be a pretty interesting Q3, Q4 for ETH. You have, uh, what's the next upgrade called? Cancun, I think. Cancun. Can Cancun. You have uh, EIP4844, proto-dink sharding, reducing L2 fees by a lot. You have uh, like Steeth flipping ETH. Yep. I think you're going to see a lot of that. I mean, the short term, the 4844, I, like, I think it's very exciting. Um, it'll definitely decrease the L2's fees. But like yesterday, Bedrock decreased Optimism's fees by like 90% in and of itself. It's not like that was any change to like the L1. 
or the L1 asset or the L2 asset itself. It's just like a bit cheaper to transact on Optimism. I think people are going to obviously enjoy that and, and use Bedrock to create their own L2s. But like, I don't really see that as being super, super, you know, big news. I don't know, Michael, if you agree with me or not. Well, Bed Bedrock was big, not because of like Reddit cut gas by 40% or something, cut the deposit confirmation times by 90%. But I think the real like second order uh, implication there is that it kind of opens the gates for Coinbase's base to launch, right? Yeah. Weren't they waiting right. for this? Right. Yeah. Yes. This is this is the first OP stack enablement feature. The stuff I'm using, and frankly, is like kind of the medium term, like 18 to 36 months roadmap of like, do we actually get dank sharding on L1? What does that look like? Does the EF just like call it a day after the rollups have scaled to like, you know, who knows how many transactions per second? But I think that's going to be a very interesting debate within the community. The, the other thing, just as context here, uh, I, I pulled up ultrasound money. There, over the last 30 days, 137,000 ETH that were burned. Arbitrum was 3,200 of that. Optimism was 1,400. So, you know, we're not talking about like layer twos being a full feature or like a full burn component of, you know, they're like one and 2% respectively. And so I think generally, you know, we don't need lower gas costs right now on those L2s because they're not, they're not being utilized to the full extent. And once that starts happening, you know, applications start developing where you actually start cramming those things full of transactions. That's when we can start talking about, you know, the need for proto dane charting. Do you have any sense? There was something maybe kind of interesting this week or, or maybe not particularly interesting, but I don't know if you guys saw something called aerodrome happen. But um, Velodrome is, I think it's the largest app on Optimism, Optimism Exchange. Yeah. It's a it's a fork of Solidly um, with a couple, that was the Andre Crone exchange that they're, he was kind of the, it was kind of the original VE33 and there are some improvements. It's actually, you know, from what I understand, Velodrome's actually doing pretty well. So then Aerodrome announced that they want to be the liquidity hub on base. I'm a little bit unclear what the relationship is in between Aerodrome and Velodrome. But there's going to be an, an airdrop of mm -hmm. airdrum tokens, and they're going to people who staked uh, VE Velo holders. Like 40% of the token supply are going to VE Velo holders. Um, it generated some lively debate internally. Like, I think you could probably make the case of like, why this is just another deployment on a second chain. Like, why would you want to do that? I also think it's probably worth noting that there haven't been a ton of really successful deployments from like main chain on layer twos and maybe the a sort of new but related team with a token is a good strategy. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you guys saw it, but I thought it was kind of an interesting tactic. I mean, it, it just like speaks to the dynamics of these L2s and courage. It's like you launch a new L2, there's going to be a project that launches on you, gives away tokens, bootstraps CVL, bootstraps fees, they pay it to ETH, you know, they post the call data. Like, I can kind of see this trend persisting over many, many, many different L2s, not just base. I, I think this is like interesting. Veldrome has definitely proven out that like there is a market for new challengers to incumbents on these different L2s. And to tie back to our Uniswap conversation, I feel like that's probably what they're, that's what I would be thinking about is like, what's the growth factor right now? It's probably like LSTs on L1 and then just like a proliferation of native assets on L2s that look and feel a lot like your money makers on L1, like just meme coins, new projects, you know, random stuff like that. I think you kind of want to be across those if you're going to be serious about competing. And uh, the two token model kind of seems a little silly to me. 
Um, you should probably just try to do it with one, but I think Belgium has the right kind of like strategic mindset of just going after every single chain that launches and trying to make it, you know, the canonical liquidity provider. Vampire squared approach. Yep. Yep. It's interesting that no one's tried that on Lido yet. Like, I, I still think, you know, someone will, will probably try and, and I guess they just haven't been successful so far, but just that how, approach is... How, how would you say that that would work? Just go after Steeth holders and wrap Steeth holders? Yeah, you offer them tokens. Like, the LST farms have definitely gotten temporary TVL, but, you know, you you basically, uh, you know, spit out tokens, try to basically force exit the Steeth somehow and restake it to your own validators, bootstrap your own validator set. The problem is this this all takes a long time, especially at scale, and your token price is going to drop before you probably get to escape velocity. Um, that would be my guess, at least. I that's, do that's... think that there's an element of maybe not dropping tokens specifically to Vampire Attack as a competitor to Lido, but I, I do see there being a lot of movement in the direction of, like we were talking about with that crossing chart, adding Steeth and wrap Steeth into the collateral set or into the capabilities of other protocols. And I think that's in the picked up and, you know, whether or not you're getting token incentives from participating with that as an asset, I think that's going to be the equivalent of, okay, great. You want to trade perps? Like we've got a derivatives exchange and you can use it at wrap Steeth as collateral. It's going to be hard to get collateral recognized. You know, if you got like a new LST, I definitely wouldn't exactly. have taken that in, uh, in any just like of the canonical protocols. Yeah. I think the only okay. two that are supported by Maker are Wrap Steeth and Rocket ETH. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess so the the if you're if you're Lido, I guess there are like a couple things that you can do. You can make uh Steeth more give it more utility, um, or you could try to juice the yield. And then I guess juicing the yield is more in the there are more implications for restaking there, because I'm sure there'll be some sort of race for like other liquid staking providers to have their validator set restake onto other weird chains and sort of juice the yields that way. So that's another sort of like a, you know, a yield competition. I feel like that's another way that you could attack Lido as well. That only works if you think the restaking players have like a very high FDV coming out of the gate. Like it, I think we have evidence to suggest that your average new LST is going to have very little success in vampire attacking Lido. But like if the restaking play is valued at like 10 billion and you have like a billion of incentives for a year to give out, you could probably take a, a better run at it. But I still don't think you'd be very successful, honestly, because at the end of the day, the thing that you're restaking on, like you need to get fees towards that. You need to bootstrap developer usage on that. Like that that's not exactly straightforward. You're basically just like another L, L1 or L2. Yeah. Well, there could be, I mean, I don't think any of this would happen with Eigenlayer anyway, because Eigenlayer is only approved uh, ETH and Steeth initially. So I think yeah. they'll be very choosy, but who's to say in the next bull market, there wouldn't be, you know, some competitor to Eigenlayer that, I mean, that's how it works. I had some newfangled thing. I, I don't know what it will be now, always. but they'll, yeah, always. Bitco's buying uh, Prime Trust. Do you see that? Didn't Bitco get hacked once upon a time? Did they? Oh yeah, Bitco. I feel like Bitco's pretty. pretty yeah, I didn't know about that. Well, right, Bitfinex got hacked, and their their money was a Bitco. Fudmonger <laughs> over here. Very different Fud story. story. <laughs> got a little Fudster. 
multiple FUDs. No, I mean, Bitco did sell to Galaxy, but then that deal got walked back for $1.2 It's a huge acquisition. Yep. Man, I feel like Galaxy dodged a bullet on that one. Eh. I think the we well, were trying to it was the it was the it was in the heat of the prime bro we're all gonna build a prime brokerage conversation, you know? Falcon X was ripping, Coinbase acquired Tagomi, like everyone wanted to be the prime broker and uh Galaxy scooped scooped him up. My I think I also uh, think they don't well, that's too much money. Too much money. Too much for sure. It depends on the financials of Bitgo, but that was bull market, so you can assume that the valuation was inflated. The tinfoil hat perspective is that that was going to be the way that galaxy went public on the nasdaq because right now they trade on the tsx they mm -hmm. can't yeah. come public in the united states because yeah you know basically investment company issues and if you have a big enough business that's driving enough revenue from you know a business versus investment returns you can't actually become not an investment company he's he's also moving people out of the u.s i just saw a, a report on that He's uh moving the moving the folks to like Singapore or something. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the exodus to Asia. Um, I had dinner with uh, <laughs> that's what we're, we're calling it. That's the that's the title of this podcast. Everyone's leaving. Everyone's out. Everyone's out. No, I did have dinner with the uh, founder of this crypto company. Said twenty percent of their business six months ago was coming from Asia, and now it's seventy percent, which like is a very stark difference in a very short amount of time. Um, and I'm curious just how you guys are seeing that. Like, are your companies that you're talking, like companies that you've invested in, are they trying to do more business in Asia? Is this some overhyped thing? Is this like, what, what are you guys seeing? All the games are tar targeting, yeah. you know, East Asia, Southeast Asia. Like those are kind of the most ripe markets for, for at least the games specifically. The DeFi and the trading feels like it's, it's kind of like, the, the UK, Singapore, Hong Kong, Toronto to a lesser extent. But like all the VCs are still in the US and it feels like all the media is still in the US and it feels like all the kind of, you know, very startup y founders that you get from the tech ecosystem, which, you know, frankly, just tend to be the best ones are still in the US. So it's probably a bit more more skewed towards Asia at the moment. But I, I do think that's also a preview of like if, if any of these games hit, the industry is going to be mostly in Asia. Like, I, I think that could happen. It isn't happening at the moment, but I, I don't think the exodus from uh, the U.S. is the right way to phrase it. It's just like the Asian market is growing. Like, keep in mind, they did not get caught up in Celsius, BlockFi, FTX, you know, like they were, the government, right or wrong, saved them from that just by not allowing them to access it. So they have a bit friendly of a perspective on the industry than, than otherwise. Equivalently, just imagine what it's like. And I was having a call with one of our portfolio companies this morning based in Brazil. <clears throat> and their perspective is like, listen, 80% of the market is finance. In Asia, it's probably the exact same. Like th this is uh, all of the stuff that they missed also paired with, we have the biggest, you know, exchange on the planet, which is a distribution funnel for any anything that, you know, people are launching. They also have, you know, a wildly fanatic games community as Vance was talking to. I think Asia is going to be kind of the the temporary heart and, and center of this for for a bit. Uh, but going back to it, as soon as regulation becomes clear, like uh, whether it's this bill, whether it's something else, like there's going to be movements in the next year or two to make this stuff real. Like that center is going to gravitate right back to the U.S. because it's going to be instead of you know unregulated DeFi, it's going to be 
regulated, totally blessed, and people are going to move in. Yeah. Like, think about it this way. If you're an entrepreneur and you have an option to do a token or equity and both are fully regulated and you won't get in trouble for doing one versus the other, nine times out of 10, you'll probably do the token. Like, I, I do think that will will be like the new paradigm. And if you're an investor, you probably want to sign a token warrant for every single investment that you do, if that really happens. And that's like a really different frame of mind for a lot of people and probably changes the VC landscape downstream as a result. Like a lot of people will have to register as RAs, but yeah, maybe it does gravitate towards Asia in the interim. But I feel like once the regulators are able to put this behind them, and, and I do think the SBF trial is also part of that. We can, there's just things like emotionally, I feel like people still need to to put behind them, basically. October 2nd. That's going to be a dumpster enough, I'm sure. Every day, the coverage is just going to be like insane as the evidence piles up. It's going to be done. I mean, it's supposed to be done by the end of the year, by, by Thanksgiving. Yep. Well, the, the, great, uh, great Thanksgiving with the fam, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> We got him. <laughs> All right. I, I will say someone put this pretty well. It's like the flip side uh, that I was talking to this week. The flip side of the U.S. taking forever to make decisions is that it also provides kind of more sound ground as opposed to a regime that is really top down and they can change their mind basically on a whim. So, you know, someone used like right now, everyone's really excited about the UAE. Right. But let's just say for hypothetical sake, FTX had happened there. They can change these laws overnight, you know, and right. sunset a yeah. whole industry. And it's just not, you know, if you have a really long-term mindset and you're trying to build a generational business, it's just harder to do on that that type of footing than it is in the U.S. I, I would say in addition to that, it, a number of other jurisdictions are waiting to take their cue from U.S. opinions. Yeah, like I, I was once again was talking to the portfolio company in Brazil. And, you know, they were surprised they were they wanted to talk all about, you know, the different suits that were going on. Um, but they were they were surprised because they hadn't heard that much about the market structure bill. And it's like, OK, and, and they're intrinsically tied in with a number of, you know, regulators and, and governmental bodies in, in Brazil. They want to move forward. But if there's something on the table that the U.S. is going to pick up and move forward with, like they're going to follow suit. Exactly. If, you, if you're still in position in the U.S. and your business is doing well and the regulation happens, like it's going to be night and day, you know, because there's not a lot of people who will just like, frankly, still be there at that point. You know, even if it's in like six months or 12 months, I do think it's just going to be game changing for the whole industry. Yeah. Yeah. How worried are you guys short term about some of the subpoenas that seem to be going out to protocols? Not worried. Not worried. Not frankly, really that's, worried. you know, that's been going on for years. Yeah, that's not a not a new phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. What what what? Adv- I mean, I don't know. We I think a little while ago talked about like sort of sentiment, and um, it's an overused analogy, but this does feel at least to me a lot like 2019 kind of. And I feel like there's a big sentiment difference in between even when FTX and everything is like exploding and people are really worried. At least there's sort of an active energy there, right? Like you're sort of keyed in and paying attention. Whereas I do feel like the aftermath of that tends to be a little bit more depressing, actually, uh, because that's when apathy really sets in. And, you know, you, what you, the, your first instinct to say is that, oh, all that stuff is behind us. Now everything's going to turn around. But then there's like a lag before it actually does turn around. And I think that can actually be the most mentally challenging for a lot of people, especially very execution oriented builders. Um, what do you guys think about just like 
sentiment generally? Do you talk to a lot of your founders that are struggling with this? Like, how long do you think this goes on? And I don't know, what advice do you give them? I think uh, you you can, on the negative side, like you can really dig the, the hole as deep as you want. Like you can, you can go to the earth's crust, like just thinking about, you know, is the industry fucked? Like, does this protocol work? You know, is my team the right team? Am I wasting my time? All of that. It, it really is kind of like you can choose your own adventure and that leads you only to one path, which is just like failure or giving up. But I, I do think if you take a step back, like objectively, a lot of the stuff that's happening is like a positive backdrop. And, you know, when things are bad, you just got to put one foot in front of the other. I think there's really no like you can't wake up happy one day. You just got to keep going. Uh, you know, maybe that's not like the most comforting advice, but like good advice. No, I have. Yeah, there's nothing else I you mean, can do always. And the alternative is just like the doom loop. I'm trying. It doesn't really work that well. It doesn't help. The the best founders don't have those types of points. That's conversations awesome. or perspectives. And I would say, honestly, most of the conversations that we have with portfolio founders is like, here's all the news that's happening. Like, how do you reevaluate? How do you readjust? You know, do you want to change strategy? Like, I know your head's down building right now, but like maybe pop up and like touch some grass or like actually get outside and see what's going on to assess where things could be going and make sure that you're on the right path there. Like that's our job is to see the tea leaves or hear, you know, different disparate information, put things together and just say, Hey, like, here's where we think things are going. You know, use this information as you want. It's, it's really not like the founder therapy of like, what do we do every day when we show up to work? Also, we, I think it's like two days away from being the, the four year anniversary of starting framework. Like we started in the summer of 2019 and if this if this is summer 2019 like this is the best time to be doing exactly what we're doing yeah i think the other thing is like you have to believe that you're building a big business like you have to there's there's milestones that you can put in the ground that are irrefutable can you get to 50 to 100 million of arr that's kind of like the minimum for like a venture outcome for you to make a lot of money and i think a lot of people you know frankly have like the small market problem right now where it's like you know, you're a business that's selling to a business that's facilitating like retail flow or, you know, NFT sales or like, you know, there's just not many things that you can sell software to. And I think those people are having a bit harder of a time just understanding the reality of like, if this, if your startup is going to succeed, you need 10,000 others to like use and buy their product. And right now there just aren't 10,000 startups willing to do that. But the people who are closer to the metal, either building new markets, um, you know, closer to the fundamentals in places like DeFi, or building for just gigantic markets like games. Those are the people who have a lot of reasons for optimism and it's kind of just on them. Like, like I, you, like I do believe most of those people can really build things that are important. It's just a matter of, of having the tenacity to do it. You guys want to talk about Chainlink a little bit? They've had some, they've had a big, big news week. Oh boy. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Chainlink. The Marines, baby. The Marines. Give, give us, give us our growth. This is our growth strategy. We need the Marines to jump. Up. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I wouldn't, wouldn't play with them. Oh, man, they were also born in the bear market. Um, yeah, Chainlink had some announcements of some uh, partnerships this week. I, I think the funny part is when at least we got started with Chainlink, which is in 2017 when they launched literally the rumor of the first partnership that they were going to announce was Swift. And it was like Chainlink and Sergey are working with Swift behind the scenes. 
And it was always the rumor of Swift. And when Swift, when were they going to announce that, you know, Swift is switching to Chainlink and it's going to run on Chainlink? Well, this week they announced like for years, like just little photos and like we do, we'd watch like, we would dial into like the Swift yearly conference, which is like totally, it's like such like banking drivel, so dry and like getting through hours of it. Just, just, five minutes of Sergey, but you know, the madman, he pulled it off or at least, at least, you know, proven concept, like, you know, step in the right direction, but it is good to see. Sergey. Yeah, they've got is some pretty decent names. Is, huh. is Ser- Sergey Nazarov. There are rumors. I like all the like, sir. Yeah. Is Sergey Satoshi? Like he owned smartcontract.com in like 2009, <laughs> like a day after the white paper went live, like all those things. Wow, you you've gone deep on your Sergey lore. Oh, I've gone. Chainlink was my yeah. Well, we don't, we won't get into it. Um, the guy next to me when I first the guy next to me in 2017 was when crypto was ripping. When I pre Blockworks was a was a big uh, Chainlink bag holder. So I would uh, all his name was Mike. <laughs> you owe that guy a thank you. <laughs> you owe him like an edible arrangement. I owe him a nah, thank you. Yeah. Um, what is Chainlink's business? Because they have like 400 or 500 or 600 employees or something like. What, how do they make money? Like, what is their revenue models? Like, what are their products? Uh, well, it's changing. I think historically it started off with price feeds and all the DeFi applications that needed decentralized price feeds. Um, you know, basically every single DeFi protocol at this point, uh, would pay to use those price feeds. And that was something that was sort of negotiated or talked about. And, and, you know, sometimes it was paid by the DAO. Sometimes it was a service, uh, fee, I don't actually have very much context as to how that was constructed. I think where they're moving in general is to CCIP, which is cross-chain communication information protocol. Um, I'm probably butchering that, but uh, we can think of that as like a cross-chain, you know, messaging protocol where you can actually have, you know, no bridges and decentralized trust for uh, those different node operators on those different chains. And that gets cured by the token, you know, it's paid for by the users, and it would be something that flows to the operators of those nodes. Like an L1, basically. Yeah. Got it. Well, I think the Chainlink Dream of an L1 is, is actually going to happen. That, that was at least like the smart con takes of last year. And if you think about it, like they probably have some of the most amount of developers building on them of any L1 in general, just by virtue of the price feeds. Yeah. I mean, they definitely have the most TVL that's supported by a protocol other than Ethereum. Is it public how much revenue they do? No. We don't have no idea either. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think generally you'll be able to see everything on-chain with CCIP, I would assume, because yeah. it's all going to be on-chain. Um, the stuff that happens that isn't that in historical products no idea. The other stuff that they do, which I think is kind of under-noticed, is um, random number generator, which is what powers most of the play-to-earn gaming. So whenever, like, it's actually kind of a hard math problem to prove that something was a random number, especially with the compute of Ethereum. And you have to be able to have that for it to be a fair game. Um, And so that's, that's one of the things that, you know, they're obviously powering DeFi, but they're also powering a ton of games. Hmm. That's interesting. Can you, can you explore that? I, I'm not fully following. What is that? Why yeah. You... So like in 
if you're programming and you have like a math function that gives you a random number, it's actually just like we're going to choose one between zero and a hundred and set DV to that percentage to a certain decimal point. Well, it's actually not mathematically random. There, there is some bias in that. And for you to do a fully random uh, calculation, it has to be something that requires off-chain compute. And that's what their off-chain compute enables and then brings it back on-chain. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, it's cool. They've got a lot of different things like that that have traction. It doesn't it's not like outside the realm of possibility to see this as no one. Do you do you guys see a little while ago, I think it was Dan Elitzer who wrote this big long thread about what makes up a crypto primitive and sort of advocated for not using oracles in DeFi primitives? I would be curious what you guys think about that. I feel like that would lead to multiple financial disasters almost immediately. Like the on-chain oracles have caused more problems than the off-chain oracles, just empirically, over the past few years. Mm. Uh, also, uh, well, generally, I would say that sounds like a great research project, but not something that's real. Yeah, like Uma, I, I remember back in the day, tried to build BitMEX with no oracles. Like, it was, it was an interesting idea, but like mostly a science project. Like, these are really interesting designs. They're just the consumers make it makes it very hard for them to use and also um there's huge accidents if you get a bad oracle on chain because it's just super volatile right and the prices are by definition stale if all of the discovery happens on centralized exchanges it, it's like uh remember when auger was going to be the oracle solution for for all of crypto and it was like a 14 day contest period and you had to get a certain number of votes to be able to annoy, enable quorum and then people would vote on whether the outcome was correct or not it's like come on People now. just want to know if it was heads or tails. <laughs> I feel like decentralized prediction markets one of those like white whale things in crypto that like every few years people think of that. Poly market does okay, I think, but only when there's like the once in four years presidential elections. Yeah. What do what do you think about different like a dex like what about something like a Uniswap or like that which wouldn't depend on a depend on a price oracle but you know they basically depend on arbitrageurs to move the price back in line i think generally like the the one thing that is becoming more apparent and actually kane from synthetics had an interesting post on this recently which is basically their trials and tribulations of having a, a pull versus a push uh, oracle solution the reality is that having multiple solutions for different use types and user <clears throat> user types is probably the best solution for most of these protocols. 99% hmm. of the time, it's going to be used one way, but if you're going to use the product in that way or this other way, it's probably something that would be better suited for something easier. I got to run. All right, yeah. fellas, we can call it. All right, later, guys. Later.